0: Hey, good morning. How we doing? Grab your Bibles and find the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, Ephesians 3. Um, we are going to hit the halfway point of our study through the book of Ephesians. We've been going through it since the new year. It's going to take us to Easter. And uh, this morning, we are going to work our way all the way through chapter 3. So find your way to Ephesians. It's good to see so many of you here. Um, you guys were here last night. You're kind of freaking me out when you come to every service, but that's okay. I'm glad you're back. And uh, let me just start by reading uh, some... Kind of an interesting story that I read this week. It was in Bloomberg Business Week, And there's a gentleman by the name of Blake Hall. You wouldn't know that name. But Blake Hall is the owner of a company called ID.me. And ID.me is a major player in identity verification on the web and across um, different uh, social medias, works with governments to make sure that with insurance claims and with unemployment claims... The people making the claims are who they say that they are well last june june of 2021 blake hall came out and claimed that over the course of the pandemic over the first 15 16 months of the pandemic roughly 400 billion dollars had been stolen from the u.s government via identity theft congressman kevin brady and I'll put this quote on the screen. He said, the greatest theft of American tax dollars in history has risen unabated to $400 billion, with nearly half of all pandemic unemployment spending lost to fraud by criminals. $400 billion. Now, understand that this is not American citizens making false unemployment claims, saying that they are unemployed when they actually have jobs. This is Um, international crime. This is cartels. This is Nigerian computer hackers. This is international syndicates. This is dark web type stuff. 400 billion, half of the dollars that were intended to go to U.S. workers who were struggling because our economy was shut down and in desperate need of relief. 400 billion. To give you some perspective of what 400 billion is, that's more than the annual budget of our U.S. Army and Navy combined. How's that make you feel? A little frustrated, right? Like, those are real dollars. might not surprise you, but our governments and our states were not real happy with that disclosure that was made by Blake Hall. So they did some of their own research, kind of looked into the problem themselves, and maybe you'll be less frustrated to find out that our government today says that Mr. Hall was overstating, he was exaggerating the amount of actual fraud. They claim that the fraud is much closer, not to $400 billion, but only $100 billion. Does that make you feel better? Mr. Hall stays and restates his claim he stands by his number all of that to tell you identity theft it's a thing it's big business it's a real problem and in the book of ephesians what paul has been doing is he's been spending the first three chapters in the book of ephesians establishing for us who our identity is as followers of jesus christ the last four ch- or three chapters, chapters four through six, where we're going to be next week, it becomes very practical implication on how we're supposed to live based off who we are. The big idea this morning, if you're keeping notes, is really simple. It says, from your identity flows your activity. And Paul understands that he has to set a groundwork for us, give us some doctrine, some theology in the first three chapters saying, this is who you are, therefore this is how you should live. Therefore, this is how you should live, is the last three chapters. And as Paul is writing to the Ephesian church in chapter 1, he went through a long part in chapter 1, basically saying, here's who you are in Christ. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are adopted. In Christ, you were chosen. In Christ, you have an inheritance. In Christ, you are sealed. This huge long list of everything that is ours because we are in Christ, that is who we are in chapter 2, how we got there. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy by Faith, we are saved. We are his workmanship. And then last week, Cal talked about that we're called to unity. So Paul is writing to the church, and as we get to chapter three, chapter three is actually going to be divided into two sections. The first is going to be, um, Paul goes off on a rift. He goes off on a rabbit trail. He goes off on a... um, just kind of breaks his thought, goes a different direction. And then the chapter finishes with a prayer. So we're going to look in chapter 3. But what's driving chapter 3 and what Paul is saying to the church is he's, um, he's concerned for them. He's worried that because of persecution and because of trials, they're going to lose their identity. Because identity theft is not just a thing in our economy. It's not just a thing for U.S. citizens. You would be surprised how often Christians lose their identity. We get a glimpse of the problem in Matthew 13. Jesus is teaching. He is giving a parable. And it's actually the first parable that he gives. And it's a parable of a sower who is scattering seed. And the seed falls on four different soils. And in explaining that parable to his disciples, he says, the first seed falls along the path or along the road. It never takes root. The birds come, they take it away. That person's never really saved. So I'm not going to talk about that one. But there's three other soils. And let me just read to you from Matthew Chapter 13, verse 20, it says this, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Then verse 21, yet he has no root in himself. It endures for a little while, and when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. He will go on in verse 23 to say there's a fourth soil, and when the seed falls on that soil, it takes root, and the roots grow deep, and they produce fruit, sometimes a hundred, sometimes sixty, sometimes thirty-fold. So if you look at the math of Matthew 13, there are three soils where the word of God has impact, it has an effect, you see growth. But in two of those three, sixty-seven percent of the time the gospel goes forth it impacts a life but then is stolen the identity is lost and if you look at the verses can you see the culprits can you see the thieves they're listed in verses 21 and 22 the things that are stealing the believer's identity is tribulation it's persecution it's the cares of the world it's the deceitfulness of riches and Paul is writing from prison. He is writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he knows that at least three of those four thieves are hanging around in Ephesus. He knows there's persecution. He knows that there's tribulation. He knows that there's concerns in the cares of the world. Maybe there was also the deceitfulness of riches. Maybe all four thieves were there, but at least three of the four were there. And he's worried that they're going to lose their identity. So he writes to them in chapter 3. Let's pick it up in verse 1 says this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, just a couple things before we jump too far into this. If you remember last week, there is real hostility between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It's a cultural thing. Uh, the Jews hated the Gentiles. The whole idea that God would use Paul, who was a Pharisee, Before he was saved, he was a high pedigree Jew and that he would be given the task to preach to the Gentiles. There's some real irony in that. But Paul is saying, I'm writing in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. Paul would have never believed in his life that he would ever be called to be a preacher to the Gentiles. The hostility was that strong. And as Cal talked about it last week, I was trying to think, correlate, have I ever seen that type of hostility anywhere in my life? Because he was saying it's much greater than any of the discrimination and hostility that we've even seen and experienced in our culture. And I was thinking back to when we adopted um, two of our daughters, Alex and Nicole, we were going back and forth. They were adopted from Romania. And when we went to Romania, uh, even within the church, there were two different groups of people in Romania. There were the Romanians and there were the gypsies. And the Romanians hated the gypsies. If, if you were to go into any town 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when we were adopting our two daughters, if you went into a major city, Bucharest, Timisoara, Arad, throughout Romania, there were always children begging. Most of the time they were crippled. Broken legs, broken arms, burns, whatever. Gypsy children maimed by their own parents to make them more effective beggars. In the church and in the orphanage that we were dealing with, uh, open hostility even amongst Christians against gypsies. When we took our girls out of Romania and we were taking them back to the United States, we we were flying from uh, Bucharest to Zurich. We got to Switzerland and we had a flight problem. We missed our connections. So now we were in a situation where we had to spend the night in Zurich. The problem is just adopting our girls. They weren't American citizens. They only had Romanian passports. And the Swiss wouldn't let the Romanians into their country. Romanians weren't allowed to enter Switzerland. So we were stuck spending the night at the airport. Why weren't the Romanians allowed into Switzerland? Well, because a band of gypsies had crossed over from Romania into Switzerland, went to one of a, a famous beautiful lake, and ate all their swans. <laughs> so now no Romanians could go into Switzerland. They hated the gypsies. Our daughters, they didn't know English. So we were trying to communicate in those first two months. Life was crazy. We now had five kids instead of three. We had these, three, these, these two six-year-olds. We were trying to get into kindergarten. They couldn't speak English. Kristen was going every day. And when they would get really mad at us as parents, the meanest thing that they could think to say was, you gypsy. <laughs> it was hostile. And here's what Paul's doing. He's, he's writing from prison to this Gentile church that he's established. And he says, for this reason, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then in your text, maybe you see at the end of verse 1, there's this little hyphen, it's a little line that's important, actually, in the Greek. What it's, what it's called, it's called a digression. It is called um, a rabbit trail. He's going to go off on a rift. He's going to break his progression of thought, and he's going to go into these, this paragraph and go, oh, by the way, I need to tell you about this too. And that paragraph or that rift or that digression that he goes on, it goes all the way to verse 13. Paul's on a rabbit trail here. We know what that rabbit trail is for, what caused it. We can read it in verse 13. If you look down, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's concerned because he is in prison and because they are facing hardships in Ephesus that the believers are going to become discouraged. And when they become discouraged, identity thieves are going to show up. The trials, the persecutions the cares of this world, and they're going to forget who they are, his Christians. And he knows that before he goes into chapter four and gives the practical advice of how they're to live, he's got to make sure that their identity is firm. So look at what it says. I'm going to pick it up in verse two. Just read through kind of this digression that Paul goes on. It says this, prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, even though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that through the church, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I'm going to pull three points out of there. I hope you're going to be able to see these as we just read the text. There's three points Kind of things that Paul is asking the Ephesians to set their minds on when life is hard. Three things to focus on when the Ephesians, those believers, and I would say the believers in this room, if you're going through a difficult season, if you're going through a trial, if you're a hardship, he's going to give you three things in this task, in this text to set your mind on so that you don't lose your identity in Christ. It's interesting because I was reading this, I was Thinking about if somebody comes to me and they're going through a hardship or a trial where I usually take them in scripture where I ask them to set their mind a passage that came to mind was James 1 2 through 4 consider it all joy when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance that you will be perfect and complete lacking in nothing and I'll make the argument this trial that you're going through it's actually for your good it's increasing your faith. I'll go to Romans 8 where it says, For I don't consider the sufferings of this present world to be worthy to be compared to the riches that await us in heaven. One of the things that trials does in the life of a believer is it gives them an eternal focus. It gets them to start thinking about heaven, not just earthly things. Sometimes I'll take somebody who's going through a hardship or a difficult time, I'll take them to Hebrews 4 where it talks about the fact that we have a high priest who has endured everything... That We've gone through he was tempted just like we were yet without sin saying that when we go through difficult times one of the benefits for us is we understand our Savior better and what he was willing to go through for us or I'll point them to Romans eight twenty eight, where it says that even if it's hard even if it's a trial that God's working all things together for our good. Like these are places that I go when somebody's going through difficult seasons and I'm trying to unpack for them, your trial has a purpose. God is doing something in your life. And here's what caught me as I went through this passage, as I was repairing these last few weeks. Paul doesn't go to any of those passages. He doesn't even make that vein of argument. The first thing Paul argues, hopefully you'll see this in the text, is keeping your identity when life is hard. If you're keeping notes, point one, Hardships are not always about you. Hardships are not always about you. Paul's looking at the suffering, the fact that he's a prisoner, and he's saying, this isn't even really about me. He says in verse 1, I'm here on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 2, stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to, to the Gentiles. And in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. It's a hard thing to hear, but it's a thing that Paul's driving at. He's saying, listen, when you're going through a hard season, maybe sometimes get your eyes off yourself. Maybe this trial, maybe this hardship, it's not even about you. Maybe it's for somebody else. For me, it's been a little bit of a longer weekend. Um, I got a call a couple weeks ago um, from a man in our community. I've known him a lot of years. I had the privilege of coaching his son back when Cal was in high school. He was a teammate of Calvin's. And I talked to the father two weeks ago, and he asked if I would be willing to do his son's funeral. So I spent Saturday night at a visitate, or Friday night at a visitation and yesterday morning doing a funeral here for a kid that I had coached when he was in high school. He died of congestive heart failure when he was 33. Wrap your head around that, parents. Like, like that's a call a dad never wants to make. I don't even want to ever get a, coach, a call like that as a coach. Talked to the dad after the service yesterday as they were preparing to go to the graveside and he said something to me that was really profound. He said, as my son has been sick, I've spent every day on my knees praying for my son that God would heal him. And starting today, I'm praying every day for my son's friends who attended the funeral that maybe through the funeral and the presentation of the gospel that they'd come to know the Lord. man. That's a perspective. That's a guy saying, I want my hardship, my trial to be used for somebody else's good. I remember growing up, I was the youngest in a very middle-class family. My dad had been born in 1925. He grew up during the Depression. He lost his dad when he was 14. He went through World War II. Um, There wasn't a lot of um, extravagance in our family growing up. And, And about... Midway through my dad's 50s, he made a a loan to another gentleman in his church. It was just supposed to be about a 60-day bridge loan. The other guy was in trouble on a real estate deal, and 60 days later, my dad had lost his entire life savings. I don't know why that happens. It doesn't seem fair. I don't know that my dad ever understood that. All I'm going to tell you as the youngest kid in the family that watched him go through that and watched the way that he responded to that and watched the way that he just refused to become bitter profound impact on me his youngest son sometimes our trials and the difficult seasons that we go through they're they're not even about us let me give you another thing hopefully you'll see this in the text as well hardships are sometimes a mystery Four times in this passage, Paul uses the word mystery. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery. Verse 6, this mystery. And then verse 9, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Now, when we think mystery, we're like, okay, that's something we got to solve. We got to look at the clues. We got to look at the, the data and try to put together what's going on. That word mystery is never used that way in the New Testament. The word mystery is used 27 times in the New Testament, 20 by Paul. And what it says in the New Testament when he uses the word mystery, it's saying this is something that God has chosen to reveal at this time that wasn't revealed to believers in prior ages. So Paul will continually reference this idea. This mystery was made known to us now. This mystery was made known to me now, indicating that God didn't reveal it. It's not something that he figured out. It's because the Holy Spirit chose to give this information at this time, and it wasn't available to prior generations. And one of the things that I would like to point out as I was looking at this There's a funny thing about God, the mystery, when he reveals it, that revelation is always better than anything you could have anticipated. Let me give you some examples. It says in 1 Corinthians 15... Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So Paul's talking about what happens after we die. Is there an afterlife? What what happens after we die? And he says, Yes, we continue. There's we're eternal beings. We will live into eternity. But it's even better than that. You get a new body. You're not stuck with this one. No disease, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow. The mystery that's revealed at this point is you will be changed. The perishable puts on imperishable. In Ephesians 5, verse 31, Paul says, and we'll be looking at this in a few weeks, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So up until Paul writes this in Ephesians, there was always marriage. God had instituted that way back prior to the fall, back in Genesis 2. But the purpose given in Genesis 2 is oneness, companionship. And now Paul says it's actually way more profound than that. Your marriage, the union of marriage, is actually a metaphor. It's a picture of Christ's love and relationship with the church. When God reveals as a mystery, it's always better than we could have ever anticipated. And in this passage, in verse 6, he's saying, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he's saying in this case is the mystery that's been revealed at this point is the Gentiles, not only are they included, they're not included as second-class citizens. They're just like us, we're one body. What Paul is explaining here to the Ephesian church that is facing hardship is sometimes God doesn't reveal all the cards he's holding. You don't get to see them all at the moment you're going through the hardship. And the question that I'd have with you are, are you okay with that? Is your faith strong only when you think you can figure out what God's up to? Is your faith only strong when when you believe you can piece together the wise? your hardships or your suffering? Because sometimes we don't know. And I don't think God owes us an explanation for everything that he's doing. He's asking us to have faith even when we don't understand, even when it's a mystery, even when we can't figure out all the cards or all the reasons. Paul tells the Ephesians church, hardships are not about you. Sometimes hardships are a mystery. And then here's the to me, just the incredible one. Look at verse 10. Hardships have a heavenly audience. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized through Jesus, in Jesus Christ our Lord. A couple things. Through the church. This isn't an individual thing. He's not talking about individual believers, but he's saying through the church, that is the testimony The best way that I can describe it is the universe is a classroom. God is the teacher. The angels are the student. And the church is the illustration that he's using to prove his point to the angels. But it's in community. Tim Keller is a pastor from New York. I was listening to a sermon on this passage that he gave, man, 20 years ago. 15 years ago. I don't want to exaggerate. And it was interesting he, he stated a statement. He said this, you can be a good Christian and not a part of the church. Pollsters asked believers that question and 81% of them agreed. Yep, you can be a good Christian. You don't have to be a part of a church. You don't have to be a part of a community. You can be a, Christ, a good Christian independent of community. And all I'm saying is Paul is making an argument here that is, is the community that is revealing the manifest wisdom of God. John Stott, another preacher said it this way, it is through creation or the universe that God reveals his glory to humans. It is through the new creation, the church, that God reveals his wisdom and love to the angels. I don't have time. If I took you back to Deuteronomy 4, you would see that Israel is commanded that when they go into the new land, Canaan, and they keep the law, they are being a witness to the other nations. What Paul is saying here is to the church, the, the way that you live in community is a witness to the angels. Like, like, I don't know what you know about angels, but you know that they're not all powerful, right? They can't do whatever they want to do. They're strong dudes, but they can't do everything. They can't be everywhere at one time. They're not omnipresent. They don't see everything all at once like God does. They're limited in space, and they're not all-knowing. They don't know everything. Now, to me, they know way more than we do because they see God in all of his glory, right? But here's the truth. There's many things that the angels, though they've seen God in all his glory, don't understand. Here's something that the Bible gives us glimpses of. They don't understand salvation and they don't understand grace because they've never received it. We've received grace, and the way that we live is giving instruction to a heavenly audience. You're suffering, and you're going through hardships. You never go through it without an audience of angels. There's other glimpses of this in other passages in Scripture. Let me just point you to two. In Job 1, verse 6, we read that it says, There was a day when the sons of God, speaking of angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Crazy to me. Not only do you have angels, but you have fallen angels in the presence of God. And the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? He says, I've been roaming to and fro on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth? He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? And what unfolds in the next few chapters of Job is God brings incredible trials and hardship on Job. But what he's doing is he's proving something to the angels who, who are observing the whole thing about the faith of a man. That sometimes we have the ability though we've never seen God face to face to put our trust in something we've never seen. Also, and I'll put this verse on the screen, in First Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, it says this, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. What, he's, what Peter's saying here is he's saying the prophets were trying to figure out all the details about Christ, when he'd come, all the particulars, and it wasn't for them. It was a mystery that they were actually writing on behalf Of Peter's audience in the first century church and us. He says these things have been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Angels are observing us every time we go through a hardship. Every time we gather for worship, the angels are part of the audience. They're viewing the church. And I gotta tell you, there's some days I wonder exactly what they're learning. but they don't understand salvation. They haven't been recipients to grace. And when a father can put his trust in the Lord in the face of the loss of a son, when you're treated unfairly at work and you continue to have a gracious attitude towards your coworkers or towards your boss, when when you've been betrayed, when you've been hurt, when you've been wounded, and you refuse to become bitter, and you put your faith in a God who you've never seen face to face, the angels are going, Man, that's incredible. Your suffering, your hardship isn't about you. We're not always going to understand it, but it's always being watched. It's even being used to educate and instruct angels. I think that's pretty incredible. If we believed half of what the Bible said about spiritual warfare, we would live very differently. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's going to be Ephesians 6. We'll get there, okay? So that's kind of his digression. That's kind of the rabbit trail that Paul goes under. I want to look at his prayer for a couple minutes, pick out a couple things from this. Look at verse 14. It says this. It says, for this reason, that's exactly how he started the chapter. He's picking up the thought. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay? Every family in heaven on earth is named. What, why, does, why does Paul write that? Well, named, it, it, it kind of defines our identity. It tells us who owns us. Um, we chose the names for our kids. And when I say we, I mean Christen. So she, she would like, hey, this is the name that I really like, and as long as it wasn't too objectionable, I'm like, yeah, that sounds good for me. So that's how our kids got named. That's just how it goes, okay? But we're the parents. We named our kids. We didn't name your kids. Some of you all have weird names for your kids. <laughs> it's not my problem. They're not mine. You can name them whatever you want, okay? But, but this idea that he named Every family in heaven on earth, the statement that Paul is making here is he's saying, God owns everything. You're like, well, there's unsaved people. There's people that don't believe in him. Owns them too. Ever had a rebellious kid? Still your kid. God owns everything. Paul's making an identity statement, an ownership statement. And then let me just read the prayer. He says this. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm going to hit the benediction, which starts in 20 in a minute. Here's a couple things that I want you to note. At the end of chapter 3, at the very moment when Paul is sliding from theology, talking about our identity, he's been giving you a lot of doctrine in the first three chapters, and right before he goes to the fourth chapter where he's going to get really practical, I don't want you to miss this, he gets down on his knees and he prays. Because what he's going to do is he is saying, you can't do what you're going to be asked to do in the next three chapters in your own strength. The first thing that I see in this prayer that he asks for is strength. Paul is on his knees. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being. Verse 18, that you may have the strength to comprehend. He's praying for strength in your inner being. Your your inner being is the real you. It's the eternal part of you. It is the place where the battle rages between what you want to do and what God's calling you to do. It's, it's the real you. And, and he's asking that you would have strength in your inner being, okay? He's not talking about physical you. This is the outer man. I can give you testimony. I am 100% confident as I stand here this morning that my outer man is in the worst shape it's ever been in my life. Okay? I am closer to death right now than I've ever been. I am in full blown mid 50s decay. Okay? That's what's going on with my outer man. And you're like, we've noticed you should hit a gym. Okay? And and I'm not saying that's not important, but compared to my eternal being, the strength of my inner man, Paul's way more concerned about that. And it's interesting what he says. There's a reason why he's praying for strength in the inner man. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay. Paul's writing to believers. Why is he praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts if they're already writing, If he's writing to believers? They already have Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. He's praying for something that they already have. Why do they need strength to have what we've already been promised that we have? Well, I think there's a difference between having Jesus in your heart, having the Holy Spirit reside in you, and having him feel at home. When my kids were um, in high school, most of the time we seemed to have one extra kid living at our house. There were times when missionaries would go overseas for a short time and their kids would need to finish high school and they'd be with us. Or other times when college kids would stay with us when parents had moved. And I remember there was one season we had a specific girl living with us and um, she would come home from college. She might get home 3.30 or 4 from work, whatever she was doing. Cal would get home from soccer practice around 5 o'clock. And by the time he got home, she was already um, horizontal on the couch, remote in hand, Hallmark movie on and Cal would come home, and he would be like, are you kidding me? Like, I want to watch ESPN. Like, how am I going to wrestle the remote from Hallmark-watching movie girl? Like, how in the world does she not even be part of the family, and yet she dominates the living room every afternoon, perfectly at home? Drove him crazy. We kind of liked it that she was that comfortable. She was at home in our home. Have you, ever not been, have you ever been somewhere in somebody else's home, but you know that you're not really at home? You're just visiting? And see what Paul's saying is he's saying, I want Christ to be at home in your home. You're going to need the inner strength to deal with the things that would make him uncomfortable with your life. I'm praying that you would have the resolve, the inner strength that Christ residing in you would become a part of your identity to dwell, to settle in, to be comfortable. He's praying that they would have strength in their inner man or their inner being. And then here's the second thing I see in the prayer, that they would have knowledge beyond knowing, that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, challenge for the preacher this morning. How do I teach you about not knowing something that surpasses knowledge? Not an easy task. What is Paul saying? And, and here's what I would say. In your Christian life, there are two ways that you can know something. Jonathan Edwards, in illustrating this text, he says, there's two ways that you can know honey is sweet. You can study honey, or you can put some of it on your tongue. There's... Objective knowledge, things that you can know, but then there's also subjective knowledge, things that you can experience. And Paul wants both of those things for you. I don't, I want to ask you to raise your hand, but maybe some of you have had the joys over the past couple of years of experiencing COVID to the extent that you lose your taste and your smell. I've had that joy. It stinks. Wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth. It doesn't even taste minty. Can't taste it. Sit down, have a piece of pizza, you know what it tastes like, but you don't experience the taste. It's awful. And Paul's saying there's believers that go through life knowing things, but they never experience it. And the truth is, sometimes we fuel ourselves, we come to church and we're like, hey, uh, just give me four things I'm supposed to do. Give me some tasks. Give me some things that I'm supposed to do. Give me some things I could memorize. Give me some things. Increase my knowledge. And by having more knowledge, that'll keep me from doing the wrong things. Has knowing more about anything ever kept you from doing the wrong thing? And Paul is saying, no, no, no. I'm on my knees. I'm praying. And I'm praying that not more than no, they really know. They experience it. And then we read in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus through all generations. Here's Paul's prayer. That before I get into all of the instruction telling you how to live, I pray that you're on your knees and you're strengthened by God's power, not your own. And I pray that you experience, you don't just know, but you experience. What only God can bring that will exceed expectations. Friday night we had um, what we call a party with the pastors. Just a time for some people that are newer with the church or have questions about the church to gather. And as Cal was talking about the history of the church, I remember him saying at the beginning of the church, it was myself and it was Calvin. It was, um, well, Chris was there yesterday. He was not there. He might have been there, but he was really little, okay? I think he actually was there. But Chris, Cal, and I were the pastors And man, we we had a dream for our church, man. If we could get to 300, that would be awesome. And I look back over 11 years, God's exceeded expectations. We're not that smart. We didn't plan this thing. This isn't on our ability. We've just had a really interesting seat to witness what God's done here, and it's exceeded expectations that happens in the life of a church, it happens in the individual life of the believer where you look back and you go, only God could have done that. And I tell you what, when you experience a season like that, you don't go, okay, check that off the bucket list. I'm done with that, that was fun. You want more of it. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, amidst the hardships, don't lose sight. Don't let your identity be stolen. And he's praying. He's modeling something for us. If we're going to live the life that Christ has called us to live, if we're gonna walk worthy of the calling, that's Ephesians 4.1. It's not gonna come in your own strength and it's gonna to have to be something that God does. I hope that's our prayer as we go into this next section of this study. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the rawness of Paul. Father, I pray for those in this room. Don't know all the stories, but I know that some come in here hurting this morning, grieving, struggling. I pray that this morning has been an encouragement. Father, teach us to keep our eyes on you. It's in your name we pray, amen.